Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Paul Edelblut, who is, among other things, the grandson of Welford O. Lucy, the plaintiff in Lucy v. Zamer, one of the most iconic cases in the contract law curriculum. So welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Brian. It's uh, exciting to be here and exciting to talk about uh, family. Yeah, well, so I'm super excited to learn from you about this because this is a a really important case that everyone who teaches contracts teaches and thinks about. Uh, It's sort of in a nutshell, Lucy V. Zamer is about when a contract has been formed and is enforceable. So in the case, Zamer owned a farm in Virginia and over drinks signed a contract to sell the farm to Lucy for $50,000 and then later claimed that he was just joking and he didn't actually mean to sell the farm, but the court enforced the contract anyway. So, you know, we teach it as this sort of like example of how we think about contract formation, but as I understand it, there's a lot more going on, a lot more kind of interesting background to the story. Um, can, can you tell me a little bit about sort of your relationship to Welford O. Lucy and about the family and sort of what you know about the context and the nature of the farm in question and so on? Sure. Um, so uh, uh, what we re- who we referred to as Pop-Up, because he was my grandfather, um, was uh, a, a really a fascinating individual because he only ever had a sixth grade education. Um, and he was what you'd sort of um, consider to be sort of just a rural uh, farm boy from the, the sticks of Virginia, really just out in, out in the middle of nowhere. But underlying that, there were two pieces to him as a person. One, he was incredibly shrewd and smart. Right. Like just like I, I knew him primarily as a child up through my, you know, uh, college years. Um, but you sensed in everything he did and everything, every conversation you had, there were lessons and there was a direction he was going. Um, you felt very led by the questions at some level um, because he knew where he was going with things. Um, he, he actually um, married, he was married previously um, and had several children um, and then married my grandmother, um, my father's mother. Um, and um, this family lore is that she brought a bit of, um, uh, a bit of, calm to him, um, that he was a, uh, not necessarily a wild man, but he was definitely, um, a, a player of sorts, um, both in business and life in general. Um, and that's the other part about him. He had a heart that was gigantic, um, and, uh, just loved people. Um, we, we tell a story to this day that, he, as he got older, he loved going to funerals because it was a place to meet people, right? It was a place to talk to friends. And, and despite the sad times, uh, he just loved talking to people, um, Mm -hmm. and literally could strike up a conversation with anyone, um, and, and talk about just about anything. Um, more specifically in terms of, of business, um, he was, uh, you know, a lumberman at heart. Um, his house in Richmond, where he spent the latter part of his life and where I primarily knew him, um, 
that most of the furniture and most of the house was constructed with wood from lumber that he either cut down or had managed and had someone cut down. Um, and as a child, we would go every Thanksgiving to, um, to visit and we'd go hunting in Virginia and he would take us to these tracts of land where honestly it was the, you were in the middle of effectively nowhere. Um, and you'd pop out and he had a friend of his who, who would take us a guide who would take us hunting, who was lived off the grid, basically no electricity, um, slightly better than a tobacco shack, um, had an old pickup truck and had about 120 beagles and would take us out and run the deer and run the rabbit for us. And, and, um, so he, he really understood the land, uh, very well and, and appreciated it, respected it. Did he ever talk at all about the Lucy V. Zamer case and his experience of being a plaintiff and like what happened in that scenario? Yeah, he he did. Um, and in fact, I think as I grew up and and you know looked at family history and and started to learn more about it, I would ask more and more questions because I was always fascinated by the fact that this guy, again with the sixth grade education, set essentially a precedent. And I'm not a lawyer myself, but I work with a lot of lawyers. And so I, I have some understanding of the importance of, of how far that decision has gone. Um, so um, one of the things that would always make um, uh, him bristle uh, was the accusation that he was either drunk uh, or that the Zemmer uh, individual was drunk or that he had swindled him in some way. Um, and he literally, uh, I mean, an, an, an anger would build in him when you brought this up and he told this story. Um, and he even, he, he highlights the fact when he discusses the case that, um, you know, not only was he not drunk, but he, he was sane enough to say, Hey, let's get your wife to sign this too. Right. I want to be sure that there's no backing out of this, that there's no, you know, um, nefarious activity going on. Um, and my grandmother reinforces that too. Um, you know, she took, took umbrage of the fact that, uh, people said he was drunk or a swindler in the, in this instance, because he had offered the, um, uh, the seller, I think it was two or three different times he talks about having offered him money and in increasing amounts. And when you think about the value of $50,000 at that time, that was a ton of money. I mean, that was just a ton of money. I was, I think, close to $500,000, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and because of that, um, you know, he said, look, that you know, I, I didn't have that money in my pocket, right. I was going to have to arrange for financing. And back in the day, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like it, it is today where you just roll down the, you know, roll down to, uh, pull up the internet and go on to rocket loans or something and get a loan for $500,000. That was a lot of money for him. Um, and so, um, you know, he talks about the case and, and felt very wronged by a lot of the coverage of it. And I think even today, a lot of the internet coverage, paints him in a pretty dark light as a, as a schemer. And he would say it wasn't a scheme. It was a plan. It was a, I was a businessman, right? Like I studied that land. I studied that land. I studied that land and I knew where it was going and why it was worth what it was worth at the time. Um, and he would argue that the court agreed with him. Um, and that's sort of where things were. Um, he, it's important again, I think if you know him as a person to know that he, I don't want to say he, sort of talk to the trees, but the trees certainly talked to him and he could walk a piece of property and he would, he would look at trees in that way that 
literally like a teenage boy looks at a girlfriend. Like he looks at a tree and he could tell you how many board feet were in it and what it was worth and why you didn't cut the one on the left, but you cut the one on the right because of a knot three feet up in it and how that was going to ruin the value of it. Right. And it's, it sort of goes to that concept of expertise. He was an expert in what he was doing. And I think, you know, people felt sour grapes over that. Um, uh, so that that's sort of where 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 it ends. I I would say that the um, you know I don't want to paint my grandfather out to be you know a perfect human being, um, but he certainly um, uh, he, he when when it comes as it pertains to the alcohol that was involved in that evening, I wasn't there obviously, but I have no doubt that those two gentlemen uh, cracked a bottle of wild turkey and maybe some local moonshine and tipped back. Quite a few, um, because that's was just how business was done back in that time. And and gentlemen sat down with their moonshine and their whiskey and and did business. Um, and so from his perspective, that's sort of where it was. Yeah. So I mean, so he did end up making a pretty significant profit from this particular deal, right? But 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 what you but what you're saying is that he made a profit because he he knew it what the land was worth and he realized that it was maybe worth more than other people realized it was worth. And so he was leveraging his expertise into, you know, a profit that other people couldn't have gotten from the same piece of property. Yeah, absolutely. I think what a lot of people who visit Virginia um, happen into the Washington DC metropolitan area and think of DC as this um, sprawling um, shopping mall kind of area, right? It's not a, it's just a, a city. And the reality is there are huge tracts of land in Virginia that had um, uh, just lumber for, for days and days and days. And like I said, when we were little, we'd hunt down there. And I mean, you'd have to be careful you didn't get lost because you were far off the grid. I mean, really far off the grid. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, um, for a variety of different industries, lumber was, was really coming back. I know he had a brother who at one point even owned a pallet company. So paper was important um, and ultimately turned into construction in World War II and then a pallet company. And, and so, you know, that, that lumber was critically important because as the Northeast sort of got crowded and, and I will say, um, I have cousins who are more from the southern side of the family, the Virginia side, and and so forth. And we were always the Northern Yankee family, um, and so there was this interesting sort of um, uh, dialogue back and forth within the family, right, about what what, what was going on because we were in the Northeast um, industrial complex, and they were in the South, where um, you know lumbering was still a huge part of what was going on and and driving the economy down there. Um, the the Gemmer family was, I think, also a pretty notable family. Like they had come from sort of, I don't know, uh, aristocracy might not be the right word, but but they had come from money. And I think at some level, um, there was a little bit that came from my grandfather that was also saying, you know what, that aristocracy, mm, yeah, welcome to welcome to Virginia, good old boy. Like we know what's going on, and we can we're not we're not slow talking dumb Southerners. We are business people and that's what we're here to do. Um, The other thing that, you know, you brought up just the the value that he made out of that property. Um, You know, 
I think the initial offer he had made was something below 10,000 and then something a little above 10,000 and then ultimately the $50,000 purchase price, which, you know, that's a huge increase, right? Like just percentage wise, like he really did continue to, to ratchet that up. And, and um, ultimately, you know, how much money he made off of it. I think he also didn't, um, he never spoke about the profit he made that he did not, it was not about for him, he was proud of the fact that he made money, but he didn't talk about that at some level to say, I'm going to keep this under the covers. That's not for public consumption, right? That's my business, and and I don't want everybody else to know about it. And when you do know how much he made, I mean, that's the whole point of business, as he would tell you, right? The point of business is to to make money, and I bought it, and I turned it around for a profit, and that's what I was supposed to do. So, um, uh yeah, he, he, he the, there are two parts of that again: the lesson part, and then just the fact that he he was just a shrewd business person. Yeah, well, he was in the business of buying property and then selling the timber on the property to to lumber mills, and then selling the property afterward. Right, as I understand it, that was primarily what he did, or among other things. But that was a, a big part of his business, right? Yeah, as a child, his family, I think, his father's business may have gone bankrupt at some point, and the the he and his brothers grew up in the sort of lumber, lumber business. Um, and they were, had a, like mini mills and that sort of thing. We're figuring out how to, how to profit from essentially growing trees or cutting down trees and selling them off to, um, largely the paper and pulp business, um, which I know very little about. Um, and in this day and age, it's kind of silly to think about, you know, paper and pulp because everything's electronic, but the, the reality is, um, uh, yeah, he would. He did it not just on that farm, but in a lot of other places. Um, ultimately, he moved before Richmond, where he ended up uh, living the last years of his life. He bought a giant farm in Warrington, Virginia, and he was doing some cattle farming up there. Um, and um, you know, again, got out of that paper and pulp business when I think things started to turn a little bit, and Virginia wasn't as easy to easy to manage. And you were up against some mega corporations, and and. Um, probably as well. My grandmother had gotten him to settle down a little bit and um, do things that were a little more uh, appropriate for a family life. So the farm in question, do you know where it was and have, have you ever been there or been in the area? Um, so we've definitely been there. It's down in Dinwiddie County. Um, I don't know that the property lines are the same as they were then. And I don't recall a whole lot about it back in the day when this all happened. Um, you have to remember the interstate network wasn't really there. So route one was the hot North South road on the East coast. And that's where the Gemmer restaurant was, where they, where they had the drinks and dinner that night. Um, and it was right before Christmas too, which is, I always find interesting because I'm surprised my grandmother would have let him out at that point in time and so close to the holidays. But, um, the, the, um, everything was right along route one. So, you know, uh, the, had you not thought that it was going to be farmed for the trees, you might've thought, it's a great place. Like this is where all the North South traffic is coming. Um, so uh, where Dinwiddie County is, if you were in Richmond, Virginia and drove South, South West, uh, probably an hour and a half, two hours um, down along closer to the uh, border with North Carolina is where, the, where that farm is. Um, and again, I wouldn't be able to tell you what it looks like. I haven't been there in a quite a while, but um, I know there's still some giant tracts of land with, with just 
pine that pine that grows straight lodgepole pine and things like that that grow straight and can be used for a lot of different purposes. Yeah. Well, when was the last time you were there, and what did it look like the last time you were there, if you can remember? Um, it, it it looked like a giant forest the last time I was there. Um, again, we we w- I remember hitting a, a dirt road and thinking we're in a station wagon. How are we ever again? Northeasterner in me uh, going, why are we going on a non-paved road? And it was sort of that clayish road. And, and we drove, I'm guessing mile, what felt like miles into it, um, into the forest. And I'm assuming we were still on the same property, but um, you know, there, there's just imagine literally just trees for as far as the eye could see. And dirt roads and occasionally in that area you'll come across you know a, a house again back then this you know 25 30 years ago there were no there was it wasn't electric in some of the houses back then and people would have just stacks of firewood to do their heating and i'm sure they cut down the trees let them dry and then burn them in you know all winter long you you do that in little um homegrown fires or um homegrown gardens um there were a lot of garden stands along that part of route one, there's a lot of, you know, um, farm stands and whatnot where you can get produce and just certainly a lot of people still hunt down there to get their, um, or, or did at the time to get their, um, did, did your grandfather ever talk about the process or the experience of being a litigant in the case? Like, you know, it's, I feel like in a lot of ways it's unusual for people to bring a claim to, to court and especially to litigate it all the way up to the you know state supreme court the way that he did did he talk at all about like why he did that what the experience was like and sort of what what it meant to him to be the plaintiff in a lawsuit like that yeah so it it's funny and knowing i was going to be be on the on the podcast i i spoke to some cousins about this and there was sort of a a story that we were sharing um so a cousin of mine um, had visited my grandfather 66, 67. So, you know, years after the Gemmer case um, and um, still quite some time ago. And my grandfather had a dog at the time, a German Shepherd named Smokey. And Smokey, um, uh, my cousin came up and, and my grandfather said, I'll bet you a quarter that Smokey can bark on command, give me his paw on command, roll over on command and sit on command. And my cousin took the bet. And at that time, 25 cents for a little kid was a lot of money. I mean, that was, you know, that was, that was a ton of money. And, um, uh, sure enough, the dog did that exact thing. Right. And, um, my grandfather made him pay the money. Um, despite the fact that, you know, he was probably the equivalent of a millionaire at the time. He made my, my nephew pay the money. And, um, he, the next visit, um, my cousin tells the story where my grandfather came up and said, here's a dollar. It's for you. Two lessons. Don't ever bet against me and don't ever bet with me. Right. Um, and, and I think that's sort of where my grandfather came at the case and why he tried it, because he felt two things. He felt like one, I did my homework and I was right. And I'm, I'm, I am justified in doing this. Um, and uh, two, he, he, I suspect that there was a little bit, like I said before, of that sense of just because Mr. Zemmer decided to change his mind, right? That that's not gonna, that's not right in the sort of moral sense of the word. You can't, you can't do that. And he wanted to teach him a lesson um, and, and really set that um, in stone. Um, 
I I am sure at some level too, um, that lesson was to the greater lumber community of the time to say, you know what, just because I'm a I'm a good old boy from Southern Virginia doesn't mean that, and I don't have an education and I don't have this doesn't mean that I'm not savvy. Um, and again, he would never say that because of his pride, but I think that knowing him, I think that definitely drove a lot of what he was doing. Um, I also think he, he is, he, he, he was, um, extremely thoughtful. And what I mean by that, I spoke earlier about the fact that he was always three steps ahead in conversations. And I think he saw where this was going. Like he, he, he said like, like they can't invalidate a contract. Like you can't just like, once it's signed, how could you possibly like, then all contracts are, are done, right? Like there's like anybody at any point in time could come back and and dispute a contract. And so he really wanted to make that point, um, that, that this is, you know, uh, the right thing, um, with, with how to handle the, uh, business transactions. So from 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 his perspective, do you think it'll be fair to say that essentially what Zemmer was was doing was saying like, oh, no, I realized after the fact that he knew something I didn't know. And I just want to kind of get more money out of him rather than yeah, a bit of buyer's remorse, I think. Uh, and my guess is, you know, he 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 thought, oh, I can push one over on this guy. I, I, I imagine at the time, Jemmer probably thought, you know what? 50 grand, that's a lot of money. Like I'm, I'm you know, half a million dollars at that time. Like that's great. Um, and then I think, um, you know, the fact that his wife signed it again is another indicator to us as a family. That's like, look, if your wife was signing things too, like you, you, there was a process, there was a thought process that happened there, right? Um, a, a consciousness of, of the steps needed to consummate a deal. And he took those steps. And so, you know, that's, that was enough for my grandfather to, to move forward with it. And, and Jemmer, I'm not even sure that Jemmer was thinking, oh, I could have gotten more money out of it. I think he was, it, it, because he was a fairly wealthy person in, in, on his own right. Um, but I think he may have been thinking, well, I got hoodwinked, right? I got hoodwinked by a country bumpkin and that's not, that's going to leave a black mark next to the family name. And he didn't want that. Yeah. I mean, one thing that kind of struck me, like thinking about the sort of criticism of the case as, as you know, potentially being somebody sort of engaging in nefarious activity is like, I mean, it, Zemmer was in every position to make the same amount of money for himself if he had just kind of realized the value of the land and reached out to the same people who your grandfather did. I mean, it's not like it's not like anything was stopping him from doing that. He just didn't realize how you know the value of the the property that he owned. Yeah, I I think that's completely true. But again, that comes back to this notion that my grandfather would tell you, look, that's business, right? Like if I can if I can uh, uh, buy a car and make more money because of I'm driving it for Uber, then great. That's a business decision. And if, if I don't, then that's on me to, you know, that's a bad business decision. And that's, that's the crux of this matter that it wasn't, it literally wasn't a scheme to get him out of, you know, to, to short him any money or short him anything else. It was, it, it was pure and simple to my grandfather. This was just a business transaction and people paint this picture of a, again, schemer. And he was not scheming. He was literally doing what any other business person would do. I mean, look at current, look at the the most famous contract dispute right now between Twitter and, and Musk, right? And 
and Musk made an offer and he's trying to bail on a signed offer. And the, the Twitter folks are going, uh, uh-uh, guess what? And actually I hope they bring up the Gemmer case in this because it's a, it's a great example. Like you said you were going to buy it and this was the price you were going to pay. You knew going in, this is what it was, right? Yeah. Well, and for me, it's a really great example of how information is valuable, you know, because really it's a case about information. It's like, if you know something that other people don't know, then being a good business person is about leveraging that information. Yeah. And Jemmer certainly had the opportunity. He turned him down in the past. He could have said, give me 48 hours and I'll get back to you. And, and, you know, could have talked to somebody in the lumber business or somebody who knew the land better. And he didn't, he chose not to do that. And, you know, we all make decisions in life and then some of us sign our name to them and have to live with them. And other times we don't. So um, I, I think that's a, that's an important. Yeah, how long did your, yeah. How long did your grandfather keep the property and when you visited it, did it still belong to him? Uh, no, when I visited, it was not, he no longer had uh, ownership of it. Um, he had moved, so he was um, shifting uh, property again, had moved up to Warrington, gotten out of the lumber business. Um, and eventually when he moved to Richmond, got into commercial property. And here's a great example. You know, he he got uh, brutalized on some some commercial land that he bought in Richmond and, you know, lost a ton of money. I mean, just untold amounts of money. And, you know, he didn't get to sue and say, well, I didn't, I, I really wanted that value to go up. Right. That's, that's the risk we all take when we we're, you know, there's buyer's remorse for a reason, right. We buy something and then we realize, oh, we can't monetize it the way we thought. So, um, you know, I, I think, um, he took his medicine, um, in the end, right. When people say, oh, well, you know, was it fair? Well, you know, karma, karma comes around and he got, he got hammered on a, on a, to transaction, but he didn't sue anybody and didn't try and, you know, invalidate the deal. He just dealt with it, took his losses and, and then, you know, got out of that business. Um, yeah. Well, so Paul, in, in closing, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you think it would be really important for listeners to know about your case, about the, your grandfather, about the circumstances surrounding the Lucy V. Zemmer situation? Yeah. Um, again, I think, in my um, professional life, um, I work very closely with a number of attorneys on a lot of con- commercial contracts, um, and I always ask a new attorney when we're when we're interviewing them to bring them on. I always ask them if they know the Lucy case, and um, you know, uh, it's important to me just as a family matter. Do you understand what the, you remember the Lucy case? And I know you might have been practicing for a while, but there's this concept that once we sign, right, we got we're committed, right, and both sides both sides are committed, um, and I think um, just knowing, um, I always stress too that. Um, to in particular newer attorneys or younger attorneys don't underestimate your clients um, because that gentleman with a sixth grade education and a country bumpkin sort of feel he knew what he was doing and um, he he got through it and finally you know uh, history may describe the incident as an alcohol fueled swindle. And I would argue that it was a business transaction among consenting adults. And that's really what, what you have there and, and why it's precedent. Awesome. Well, Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this case. It was really wonderful to learn kind of more of the context and to learn about, you know, the people involved and the circumstances. It was really helpful for me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
Tall pines kiss the sky. 